0: Welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and we discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, farming. It's our industry. It's the business we love, and I keep it interesting for you, and that's why I'm glad you do join me. Great thing about my job is, obviously, I get to speak to a lot of different varieties within the business of agriculture, you know, from cotton to cattle, cranberries to canola. I've probably done the organization. Well, last week, I talked to the American Shorthorn Association. That's right. Not even the milking shorthorns, the beef shorthorns. For a dairy kid, that was kind of cool. The American Shorthorn Association is led by its fearless leader, a gentleman named Monty Souls. Actually, he's the executive director for the American Shorthorn Association. They're a pure breed uh, uh, association. And we're going to talk about the business of beef. We're going to talk about breeds within beef, what's happening behind the scenes in the beef business, and things that you don't know that are going on in the beef business. We're going to talk about bovine genetics, what purebred registries and associations such as the American Shorthorn Association actually do, and we're going to cover a lot more stuff that you're going to find interesting. So if you like beef, if you like bi- the business of agriculture, you're in the right place. You're joining us here, and my guest, it's time to introduce him. His name is Monty Souls. Monty, welcome to the business of agriculture.
1: Uh, it's good
0: to be here. Well, and what an, exciting, what an exciting guest you are. Look at that. It's good to be here. It's better than good to be here. It took us 20 minutes to get your technology working, so it's great for you to be here. Uh, okay. You heard the intro. You heard what we talked about. I've got people listening to this agriculture, Business of Agriculture podcast. They are salespeople. They own equipment dealerships. They eat cheeseburgers. They maybe raise cattle, or maybe they're in the chicken business, pork business. Who knows? Talk to me real quickly about yourself. As I put it, uh, you're you're the executive director. Is that the correct title for the American Shorthorn Association? Uh, executive secretary, CEO. Okay, and you are a farm kid from Michigan. You have a degree from Michigan State University. You're
1: uh, you're pretty experienced. You for what? I don't have the I don't have the total degree. I didn't stay long enough.
0: Oh well, you should have. I mean, hell, you probably could have gotten drunk for two more
1: semesters if you had. Yep. But okay. I know I didn't say that. All
0: right, so uh you were you worked in Argentina for a while in the beef business. You ran a ranch in Oklahoma for a while. Just give our listeners the background.
1: Well, I grew up on a turkey farm to boot in Michigan and we had a few a few cows on the farm and that's where my interest in cows went and I expanded from a 4H project and then I eventually took a job in New York with a firm Ace old Herefords, and then we moved that operation to Oklahoma, and it became Ace Land and Cattle, and then that changed ownership. I went through three different corporate ownerships, kept the crew together. For 35 years, we had the same organization in the Hereford business, and then uh, we dispersed that, and I proceeded to uh, uh, apply for this shorthorn job, and uh, it always had been a dream of mine to work with the Breed Association, and I was blessed to have this opportunity. During my years with the Herford, or with the ranching operation, we did a lot of business in South America, and I ended up doing some consulting work down there for about 18 years.
0: Okay, so a Herford guy, a ranch guy, uh, you, you all of a sudden, then you're covering Argentina. Uh, that's pretty exciting, interesting stuff. Now, you're with the American Shorthorn Association, so how'd that all happen? So, how did you go from being a Herford guy, how'd you go from being a consultant to genetics First off, Argentina, what are they consulting on genetics? What, what do they need?
1: Well, their, their operations are totally different than ours. And as a result, they, uh, they, they, they do everything. They fatten all their cattle down there on grass. And you have to understand one thing. When they say grass, and it's similar to the grass-fed cattle up here, they're talking about uh, wheat pasture and millet and oats. They're not talking about just plain old grass. They're usually talking about cereal grains. And there'll be ranches down there that'll be, have 18,000 hectares, and all they do is run fat cattle on it to fatten them out.
0: Uh, real quick, in case the people listening to this don't know what a hectare is because they live here in the United States of America, a hectare is what, 2.3 acres?
1: Yeah, 2.2-something acres. I always figure 2.2, roughly.
0: Okay, so uh, so you're talking about these huge, huge, massive, uh, large land holdings where they've got just uh, millet and, and wheat and cattle out there eating, right? Correct. Okay, so when they come to a guy like you, way back when you were the Hereford guy in Oklahoma, they say, we need better genetics. So how did that all happen? What did you do? You said, great, uh, we're going to slay this bull and put it on an airplane?
1: Oh, well, we'd send semen. Uh, we sent a few live animals, quite honestly, but it's become much more economical since semen and embryos as uh, technologies advanced. And uh, we had to be careful, and I had to go down there and travel there and learn their system well enough to know that what kind of genetics they needed might not particularly be the same kind of genetics that was the skin thing or the popular thing up here at the time. Their frame scores were a tad less. Those cattle had to be easy doing. They had to fatten on grass. They had to put a little shape and put a little fat on their back a little quicker than some of ours, especially back during the 70s when we were chasing the frame score race.
0: Chasing the frame score race. To our non-beef people, uh, tell me what that means.
1: Well, uh, I had a very smart gentleman that's one of the great peers of our industry. Herman Purdy once told me. And he has been absolutely true that you will change the type of cattle you breed dramatically three times if you're in this business for your lifetime. I'm 66 years old, and that is a fact. And probably going forward, we'll see that change four or five times as we get more technology coming at us all the time.
0: Okay, so like I'll I'll give you an example. So let's say like okay, I always try to keep keep in mind our listener. You know, it could be a, a corn and soybean person uh, that d- really doesn't uh, know anything about feeding cattle, or it could be a, a sheep farmer, or it could be a you know a person that's on ag finance that doesn't know a great deal about the actual production side of beef. When I was a kid, uh, we fed all of our Holstein steers. And uh, and then, of course, there's people like you that say, oh, Holsteins, they suck. But then I also did a gig for the U.S. Meat Export Federation once, and uh, a person that was high up there told me that a lot of the cattle that grade prime are actually Holstein steers that are on a feed yard from the time they're 300 pounds until they're 1,600 pounds. Do you agree with
1: that? Well, there's a lot of Holsteins fed, and there's a lot of Holstein cattle that will grade, and uh, there's probably more people eating Holstein meat than they realize, and You know, as we talked in NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, our dairy farmers are just as big a part of that as the beef people because Holsteins do produce beef besides milk.
0: Yeah, so you talked about framing size uh, and framing. Uh, When I was a kid in 4-H, I was starting out in 4-H, you know, but before that, say I'm eight, nine years old, somebody would bring to the 4-H fair an 860-pound Hereford and it was about three foot six maybe four foot six uh and and that was a fed fat steer back in say 1977 am i right
1: yeah maybe a little far yeah similar to that back there in the 60s we called them belt buckle high and when you got into the 70s they started performance testing more and during the 70s those cattle would uh we started adding frame score to them because the frame score added more pounds and more, and more weight and, and just plain more beef. But in the process of doing that, we probably got the single trait selection and we lost some fertility, you'd lose some milk. We just got them too big to be practical and now they've brought them back down and moderated their frame score, try to put more shape back into their muscle patterns and get into what I'm gonna call a more moderate, more balanced animal genetically from our performance data, as well as phenotypically from an eyeball standpoint.
0: Well, you bring up another point, and this wasn't even on the outline of questions I told you we were going to cover, Monty, but one thing that I uh, point out to my ag folks is we commonly forget. We get so caught up in production. We just get so excited about what we're making, and then we think that it's about us. Uh, it's not about us. It's about the consumer. Remember, there's 99 consumers for every one producer, and it's their money. It's their food. It's their decisions. It's their votes. It's their... Petitions—it's everything. They control us. Well, I was in the feed yard part of Nebraska several years back, and I said something about carcass size. And I said, "Jesus, you're getting these carcasses so big. You're talking about what thousand-pound carcasses?" And I said, uh, uh, "Does the consumer want that?" And then they uh, said, "Well, we don't really care about that. It's just more efficient for us to take these cattle up to this weight with this kind of feed prices." And they went on the whole reasons why it was good for them to have these great big, huge carcasses, and they never once said the consumer wanted it. I have pointed out the consumer does not want uh, a nine-pound chicken because the breast on a nine-pound chicken is this big. The consumer doesn't want a steak that is this, you know, that is is 14 inches around because then the man and the wife invite their friends over and everyone's going to have a steak and it's going to weigh, it's either going to be an eighth of an inch thick uh, to be edible or it's going to be, you know, three pounds. So I think that we've gotten a little too big. We talk about frame size. I think that we've gotten away from what the consumer actually wants. The consumer doesn't want a 16-inch diameter
1: steak. Well, that'd be true, especially your restaurant trade. Uh, you know, they want portions that fit the plate and fit what the consumer needs. And in our industry, our breed, for example, needs to pay more attention to what consumer demand is and what they want and they're looking for a very high-quality product. Uh, Beef will never be considered a very real cheap product. It uh, doesn't get the same commodity experience that a chicken or a pig would get, simply because they're raised outside on land mass where chickens and pork are housed, and they got more control of them, and they got a faster gestation time. So your your beef producers have a few hurdles to jump there. And uh, the gestation time and the land mass that is required to produce one, especially from a cow-calf operator, uh, has a lot of impact, impact on what is happening within the industry. And we're going through a transitional time right now in, in the beef business that our friends in the pork and chicken business have probably already gone through. That it's time to listen to the consumer. It's been time for a long time, but uh, we're looking at uh, age groups. I know I study it. Uh, millennials are now the number one population in our pop in our in our United States, and they have the money comparatively to the baby boomers. I mean, uh, I'm a baby boomer, and a bunch of us are dying off. Let's just face it. So the facts are we got to start paying attention to that younger generation. And when you look at agricultural land mass and agricultural producers, most of them are got a little age on them and they, it's a little hard for them to start looking at them young people and start thinking, I got to listen to what they want. But, uh, you're, you're, the things you're talking about are absolutely true from the standpoint of beef acceptance in the industry and in the, in the marketplace. And, uh, the the quality of the product is gonna be really important. I mean, I, I can go back a few years and it was when we first started taking this information to producers. When I was a producer, one stake out of every four was good. Now it went to three out of four, and now we haven't got any room for error. It's gotta be four out of four if you want that customer to come back and pay the premium price they gotta pay. You're gonna see a lot of niche markets, you're gonna see people really willing to pay as long as they have trust in who they're buying it from. And, and you you it only takes you one time to lose that trust. It's like any other business you're in. So you've got to make sure we've got these cattle genetically made to fit that market as well as they have to be handled and managed properly. And today that consumer is probably just as concerned about animal health, animal rights, and that everything is done proper and uh, our NCBA is promoting that, our breed promotes it, all the breeds promote it, our youth programs promote it. Uh, We as agricultural producers make our living off the ground, off the land, and there's nothing that we would ever want to do to destroy that land. And if we're if we're running animals on that land, we want to take care of those animals in the best fashion possible simply because that's how we make the bet most money because if we abuse them, we're going to lose money.
0: Yeah, I agree with all that, and you and I had talked a bit about this. Which uh, you said the uh, it's time for us to listen to the consumers, whether they're millennials or Generation Z or baby boomers. Frankly, the age that they are doesn't matter. The reality is we and. In- Ag sometimes do not listen to the consumer, and I gotta tell you, uh, it seems to me the beef crowd might be the biggest violators of that. The, you know, they still come in in their cowboy boots and their cowboy hats, and by God, we're we're cowboys, you ain't gonna tell us what to do. <laughs> there's uh, there's nobody that uh, that out here in consumer land thinks. Yeah, well, I want to make sure that whatever uh, whatever I'm buying is just convenient for you in terms of your production methods in the feed yards in Garden City, Kansas, dear producer. They don't care about that. They care about themselves, which brings me to the point of flavor. There's a guy that wrote a book called Steak, and he talks a great deal. He's a friend of mine, uh, and he talks a great deal about the flavor issue. I believe that we've gotten away from flavor because we've gotten really good at producing these products. And, you know, we can take a steak. It'll be 13, 14, 15 months old animal, and it's a little bit flat.
1: Your comments? Well, yeah. I mean, if you eat a piece of chicken, which I don't eat because I'm in the beef business, to speak of, other than in the privacy of my own home when my wife cooks it for me because I'm not stupid. But, <laughs> uh, but you got to have some kind of sauce to put over it. Pork's got to usually have some kind of sauce. Uh, you know, I got to put sauce on my steak, you're in trouble, because I want some flavor. And in the process of trying to produce lean meat, and we can genetically, we, we got abilities to read and, and look at genetics that we can produce lean meat, but you're going to lose a little flavor. So there's a sweet spot in there, that we got to put enough marbling in those animals, so you still get a good flavor from them. And, uh, and that's what's unique about our product, you know, and farmers and ranchers, historically, they're a bit stubborn at times and uh, they're very individualist at the same time. So to get them to group up and all get on the same page is a little hard. I mean even as American Shorthorn Association, any beef breed association, they have different goals to why they want to raise those animals. Some of them want to sell bulls, some of them want to sell replacement heifers, some of them want to produce beef, some of them want to sell show calves. So our job At the American Shorthorn Association, is to service all of them. So it becomes a little difficult sometimes, but we have to keep that understanding that they are our customer of the American Shorthorn Association. No different than we have to understand the consumer is also our customer because we are in the beef business providing shorthorn beef.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, well, there's a, a, a lot of divergent goals, it sounds like, which, again, okay, if you went to a steer show, if you went to a beef show, even in my county fair, uh, you're going to see a bunch of animals out there. And I said, my God, that heifer is 300 pounds fatter than she should be. You shouldn't be breeding heifers like that. And it, there's a difference, a big dichotomy between the show animal and the production animal. And then there's, as you said, also divergent goals. Person out here in the feed yard, when they tell me that they're going to take them up to uh, 10 1050 carcass weight that's because of what works for them again it doesn't work for the consumer and like you said the restaurant trade doesn't want that pork is very very conformed it's very uniform same thing with poultry uh you know you got a broiler sized animal you got a cornish hen-sized animal you got a all the hogs going to market weigh 283 pounds or whatever not that way on
1: beef does that hurt us I think it's hurt us in the past, but I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that because of our genomic information from being able to DNA these cattle and genomically evaluate their genetics. I think we're able to predict to produce a more predictable product, and I think we probably could, are making big strides very quickly, and you'll see a lot more uniformity going forward. Uh, the For one thing, the producer, or excuse me, the consumer is going to demand it, so the producers that are going to last are going to do it, and they're going to use those genomics, they're going to use that information to make sure they keep a consistent, high-quality product that fits that market. By the way, Monty
0: Souls is my guest in case you stepped away and grabbed a cup of coffee. He's with the American Shorthorn Association. He's a beef guy through and through, except for growing up on a turkey farm in Michigan. He's been a beef guy his whole life. And you might've heard him just say, he's going to challenge me. What that means is he's saying bullshit, Damien. I don't agree with you, but that's okay. We like disagreement here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's also time for our commercial. We always put one of these around the 20 minute mark of the podcast. You're saying, Damien, you have sponsorship? Absolutely. I do. It's Me, I am the sponsor. Reminding you, if you're listening to this podcast and you want somebody on stage at your next agricultural meeting who knows a lot about the business of agriculture, who also delivers a comedic commentary and brilliance to keep your audience enthused and entertained and informed, think of me, DamianMason.com. All right, Monty Souls, let's talk about what the American Shorthorn Association does. You obviously promote the breed. The American Shorthorn Association promotes the breed. Shorthorns are one of the three British breeds, being Angus, Herefords, and Shorthorn. Then, of course, we got the Continental breeds that would be Continental, uh, let's see, Charolais, or Limousines, or cementaws. And then, of course, you got your what uh, what you call exotics, you know, Watuzis or things like this that are raised in Africa or South America. Tell me a little bit about the
1: breeds, about the history, and about what you do. Well, the American Shorthorn Association is the oldest beef breed registry in the United States. And your British breed cattle—Perford, Angus, and Shorthorn—and there's some others, the smaller breeds within our within the industry—are considered British breeds because they came from England or they came from Great Great Britain when they were imported into the U.S. Those cattle are a little different. They 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 really have a little different texture in their meat. There's been some research data done keeping those cattle British. You can pick up some different uh, texture and palatability in your steaks, quite honestly.
0: Are, are we talking about the three primary British, or are you talking about these others that now might be considered, like you know,
1: Dexters? or? I'm Bell. talking about the three primary British breeds at this point. Okay. i not saying that the other ones might not fit in and, and be acceptable, but I know the three British breeds have been used in those, in those test trials. Then you've got your exotics, which came in in the 60s and 70s when we wanted to make those belt buckle cattle really high. And most of those exotics have actually got appendix registries. We have one too in Shorthorn, so that they have brought in British cattle into those registries. And uh, quite honestly, if they didn't, they wouldn't have the numbers or have the power that they have from a standpoint of a breed recognition. So the the British breed animal carries a lot of popularity and a lot of quality and a lot of genetic material into our entire beef industry, quite honestly. Some of these feedlots have figured out through some research data done previously that uh, they want British cross cattle or 100% British cattle to feed because the predictability of getting them in and out of the feedlot is quicker, turning over the money, the cattle will be ready to harvest at a younger age, and they will quality grade a little faster than some of the others.
0: Got it. Speaking of breeds, okay, I've said uh, the Herefords conquered the American West. That's you look at. I've got a cowboy painting in my house here in Arizona. It's Herefords and a cowboy out in the range. And then uh, Angus, 30 years ago, came up with the certified Angus beef program, and they conquered the meat counter. What's the future of all these other breeds? Because it's my opinion that it will not matter. And you're saying, what? I say that right now, people still say, oh, I need an Angus, 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 because they've done a good job marketing. I think that in the next five to 10 years, it's going to matter less and less. Just like nobody cares if it's a Foghorn Leghorn, <laughs> a Leghorn chicken, or a Chester White, or a Yorkshire, if they can buy the story. And and that it's humanely raised. It's a heritage breed. For instance, Berkshire. I, I ordered a pork chop three years ago at a restaurant with my wife. I said, I'm the only person in this restaurant that knows what a Berkshire is. It's a breed of hog that we stopped raising because they weren't good in our operations and confinement operations. Beef is still the place where they push breed. I don't think it's going to matter as much five years from now because it's going to be more the story. Humanely raised, grass-fed, heritage breed, whole, unhomogenized, words like that. Your take.
1: I I would have to agree. Uh, the, the Shorthorn cattle, American Shorthorn Association, or Shorthorn registered Shorthorn cattle controlled the beef industry in the 50s and very early 60s. Then the Herefords come in and kind of took it over, and they had a short little window in there where they were king. Basically, they called King of the Range. Which I think was the term that they actually used in their advertising campaign. Then certified Angus beef kind of started to appear and Angus started to take over and, and, and take on that same role as being a dominant breed. Today, America's cow herds are pretty black. That doesn't mean they're all Angus because Simmental, Angus, Limflex, Galvey, Balancers are all black and they've brought Angus into all those other breeds. So you've got a mixture of of black genetics behind all these breeds. So a shorthorn, has a really optimum spot right now that there's not a lot of shorthorn out there. When you throw that shorthorn in there on those black cows, the hybrid vigor, the heterosis will unload and give you even more because they haven't used them for a while. Hey, All buddy, these breeds. Buddy. You
0: just use a cattle term that I want to make sure that the person driving down the road listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast who's in the fertilizer business says, wait a minute, heterosis. What the heck is heterosis? Explain
1: heterosis. Heterosis is when you take one breed, purebred, breed it to another purebred breed, and you get a big kick in added performance, quality grade, whatever you're looking at from a genetic standpoint. And, and it's free. And in some research data will show a 40% gain in actual profitability over a five-year period of time uh, if you keep them daughters and put them back in production and then go find a third purebred breed and throw it on that crossbred animal. If you don't use heterosis, uh, Bob Weber presented something to us last year at our annual meeting from K-State University that uh, you get an extra $150 profit out of every calf you have born every year if you use hybrid vigor or heterosis so yeah, it's so
0: an important part. plan. yeah so essentially to the person that's not a livestock person that's listening uh, it's uh, it's the old thing about synergies you take one plus one and you get three rather than two that's the idea I'd, and that's it's the
1: reason move.
0: and that's the reason we have to have this purebred animal and this purebred animal then we can get the benefit from it right
1: yep and and, and to follow up on your point I think American Shorthorn Association, I don't care what breed registry it is, I know that's where we feel it's it's gonna be important. The performance data, the genomic information we're able to compile carries a lot more weight than the name on the pedigree or the name of the animals or the genetic heritage. The genetic heritage is gonna be popular because of the performance data. And the performance data that is compiled also means carcass data, conversion data, all the things that go directly right to making beef. Uh, Yeah, we're going to show some of these cattle, they're going to have a lot of value in them as genetic tools to increase the value of the entire breed. But uh, the bottom line is, at some point in time, they're all going to be harvested and become beef.
0: Yeah and and the uh again it all goes back to the consumer they don't care necessarily about genomics but they care about uh the the story and they care about the taste and obviously tenderness which has always been an issue with beef more so than say uh, some of the other meat products Monty Souls air America shorthorn association guy beef guy who also was a turkey farm kid growing up in Michigan we're getting ready to wrap things up and you told me a story when we were visiting in Kansas City after I spoke to your members about going to the Detroit market with your father in the 1960s. You told me that Lester souls, your father raised a great Turkey. In fact, you told me that the people that uh, you sold to would advertise Lester souls, turkeys coming to market and all those folks there in Detroit got excited about that. You learned a valuable lesson or two because you told me on the way home every day, your dad bitched about getting a low price for his product. And you said that that taught you a valuable lesson. I think that lesson is what needs to be shared with everybody in this industry, especially those that possess a commodity mindset versus a value-added mindset. We have 25% of the global GDP still here in the United States of America. You can tell me about trade wars all you want. We are the dominant economy. We have a lot of people that want to spend more money on a food product because it makes them feel good. You and I both agree on that. Tell me about the Lester Souls story from your father and your upbringing and what it taught you about being a promoter.
1: Well, I'm going all the way back into the late 50s, early 60s. And it didn't. It didn't a lot of things haven't changed, if you really realize it. Uh, we would sell, he'd take a truckload of turkeys into Detroit. We lived outside of Detroit and we'd sell them on the Jewish and the Italian market. And when we'd get there, there'd be soap signs all over the windows that said Lester sold turkeys today and they were sold as fresh turkeys and there'd be a line all the way around the building he didn't get any more money for his turkeys than the guy to come in with another truckload and I mean maybe some of those turkeys ended up being Lester sold turkeys we don't know but the, the, the story that I learned from it not a story but the lesson I learned from it was on the way home he would gripe complain about how he didn't get a premium and I'd ask him, well, have you ever asked him for one? And he kind of look at me, and he probably was a little afraid to. And I, it had an impact on me as I went into this business in the purebred livestock industry that I, I understand the importance of promotion, I understand the importance of adding value, I understand the importance of servicing a customer, and, and that that customer has to have a good feeling a very good feeling about who they're doing business with or what the product they're buying from. That's no different than if you're buying a car or anything else. And and we talk about the story, and some people may not understand what you're saying when you say the story. Those people in the late 50s and early 60s were buying the story. They were buying the story that Lester Souls raised his turkeys in a very good fashion, and they were better than everything else. Today, that story is they want these animals to be humanely treated. They don't want antibiotics in it. Some of it may be fanatical, but it doesn't really matter. Some of them believe grass feds better than the other. Carbon footprint, we could go on and on and on. Different people are gonna have different opinions about what they feel is important. And they're gonna make an alliance with a store or even an individual breeder. And they're or going to relate to that or person, or
0: individual breed, or or a place that processes them. You're right. They're going to find the place, the product, and the promotion that makes it uh, makes it important to them. And it's not necessarily uh, what again, what our commodity mindset friends think. Well, we're going to go ahead and keep them carcass sizes big because it's more efficient, and the the customer doesn't give two hoots in hell about
1: no, they're they're going to look at quality, and they and they're going to want to feel good about who they're doing business with and what they're eating. They want to know more about their food. It doesn't matter whether we're talking beef; it's it's all everything, everything that they're going to consume. It's going to include grains and and everything else that's produced. Uh, some of the some of the things that we consider quite safe, an uneducated uh, consumer out there doesn't, and unless we do a better job of educating them. We're going to have to do it the other way because they're the ones that are going to buy our product, and we got to remember it. Every breed, I think, has advantages. Our shorthorn breed, we are a smaller breed right now. That gives us an opportunity to relate to a regional, local market that we can set up and build relationships just from the farm on, where they can go come buy a half a beef and shorthorn beef and make it your farm name shorthorn and people will relate to it, and they're going to trust the product. Your Walmart stores are starting to worry about, or not worry, but they're working on having a higher quality product in their store, and they want to build a regional relationship with producers so they can advertise what the producer does and, and give confidence to that consumer. Your big packing operations and feedlots are going to end up starting to own their own cattle. They're going to take away some of the production.
0: Well, and they're doing that because they want to control quality or again, because it's really the branding that they're trying to do or both.
1: They got to control quality because the people don't listen to them enough.
0: By the way, Monty, you should have turned your phone off before you started this podcast recording, but that's all right.
1: So, yeah, I know. Where- it's, it's My wife's answered it. So, uh, no, and and you go to a restaurant, they're going to tell you where your beef come from. They want to know, people want to know, they want to relate to that farm name, maybe even more so than the breed. And, and the breeds are going to have, are going to have value because of the performance and the information that they can supply to the, the backer or to the feedlot person, uh, I mean, right now, there's there's feed, there's companies out there, I believe Tyson is one of them that will not accept any animals unless they come from a feedlot that's BQA certified. And for those of you that don't understand that, that that's your NCBA, uh, basically follow these stats, you're gonna produce your beef better, you, you don't give them shots in the wrong places, you do everything proper. Proper handling of the animals. It's filtering right down that, these feedlots are not going to take cattle from a producer that doesn't, that isn't BQA certified.
0: BQA. Third party. Hey, wait, wait, BQA, what beef quality assurance.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. So again, what you're driving again, 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 and I think this is important because my listeners hear me harp on this quite a bit quality, but more importantly, the story. And again, the story doesn't mean you're making crap up. The story means you're, you're saying, Hey, uh, this is the stuff you've told us is important to you: environmental compliance, or antibiotic—you uh, uh, res- know, not using antibiotics to create more antibiotic-resistant bugs. Uh, carbon footprint, uh, like you said, humane treatment—all those kinds of things—and you guys are doing it. So, last thoughts, final thoughts, Monty Souls, beef guy with the American Shorter Association. Give me your final thoughts. We got to wrap up this show.
1: Well, my final thoughts are that uh, we have a breed of cattle i got to promote shorthorns while I'm here with you today, <laughs> Damien. We have cattle that will actually put the fat into the marbling before they'll put it on their back. They have been proven to be the highest quality grade animal. We have had cattle that, that will grade prime with a yield grade one and two, where Angus would have to be a three, four, or five. Perfords cannot compete with it in the same manner because God made all three breeds to be a little different, and all the breeds have... They're assets. And, and the one thing our breed can do is we got a huge docility built into them. You drive down a feed bunk line and you don't see them all run to the back of the past of the field, they stay there and eat and they gain. And stress, they don't go under the same stress that the black cattle would go under. I could go through a lot of things, but shorthorns do have a lot of things they can bring to the table. So do our competitors. I'm not gonna sit there and just throw them all under the bus. But uh, one of the things that I think we really have that uh, is totally overlooked is the taste of a shorthorn, if you ever had it, is, is a little unique compared to the rest of them. Well, you're and it's really ready. tender.
0: You're getting me ready for lunch. And you know what? When we said that you learned a valuable lesson growing up about the value of promotion, clearly you closed out here by promoting your breed. That's fine with me. You're making me hungry for a shorthorn steak. Hey, I'm Damian Mason. My guest was Monty Souls, the American Shorthorn Association. He's a beef guy. I think you probably had a lot you could learn from this about uh, not only where the industry is going, but also opportunities for all of our culture on telling the story and creating a better product. That's where things are going. That's where premium pricing is going to go and away from commodity mindset. Thank you for joining me, Monty Souls. Till next time, you'll do it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you, you guys, folks. Thanks for joining us and uh, keep tuning into the American uh, Shorter Association uh, website if you need more information on that and keep tuning in here to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Till next time. See you.